welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. This is J.F. Martel. Matt Carden is a writer, editor, musician, and college professor living in North Texas. His first collection of supernatural horror stories, Divinations of the Deep, was published in 2002. It was followed eight years later by Dark Awakenings, a book that's unique in its mixture of horror fiction and what can only be called horror nonfiction. Most notably for me, Dark Awakenings includes an essay arguing that the Book of Isaiah from the Old Testament bears all the hallmarks of a true-to-form horror tale. And that thesis really captures the vision that Matt seems to convey through a lot of his writing, namely that what we call speculative fiction has a prophetic dimension. As he says in the conversation you're about to hear, it gives us a vocabulary for dealing with parts of ourselves and the world that are the farthest thing from imaginary. In recent years, Matt has edited a number of single-volume encyclopedias on mummies, the paranormal, and horror literature for the academic publisher ABC Clio. In 2015, he earned a World Fantasy Award nomination for editing Born to Fear, interviews with Thomas Ligotti. In this episode, we discuss a chapter Matt wrote for the newly published Astounding Illustrated History of Fantasy and Horror from Fire Tree Publishing in the UK. We wanted to discuss these genres in a general sense, and more specifically, we wanted to see how they pertain to the period his chapter deals with, the 60s and 70s. How does the speculative imagination that's at work in fantasy and horror intersect with our world and our times? How did it engage with and transform the post-war era? These questions led to interesting places, weird ones. Two more things before we get started. Phil and I recently launched the Weird Studies Patreon to give you, dear listener, a way to support the podcast directly. A lot of awesome people have already pledged, and we give them our sincere thanks. Given enough listener support, not only will Phil and I be able to keep doing this thing we love to do, we'll also get to improve the podcast by creating bonus content, devoting more time to editing and writing about the stuff we discuss, and getting Pierre-Yves Martel, my little brother and our resident composer, to produce more music for the show. To know more about the perks of becoming a Weird Studies patron, visit patreon.com weirdstudies. Finally, a few weeks ago, we recorded what was, to us, a memorable conversation with Jeffrey Kripal. I want to express a very belated thank you to my friend Kike Ochri and Dr. Sean Fitzpatrick of the Houston Young Center, for connecting me with Jeff back in the fall and making that episode possible. And now, without further ado, here's our conversation with Matt Carden on the reality of fantasy and the truths of horror. We hope you enjoy it. So 
So we're going to be talking today about your new collaboration, Astounding Illustrated History of Fantasy and Horror. I'll start by asking you how that book came about, how you got involved, how you approached the challenge of writing your, uh, your chapter. I was just contacted spontaneously by Flame Tree Publishing. They're a British publisher. I can assume that I had been brought to their attention by one or more mutual acquaintances because you're familiar with S.T. Joshi, I believe, yes. who's known as the foremost Lovecraft scholar in the world, and he does a bunch of other stuff as well. He's listed as the consultant editor for the book. And there's also a number of other people, such as Roger Luckhurst, who's a pretty well-known British scholar of the supernatural and such. He was uh, wrote one of the chapters, so I don't know who brought me to Flame Tree's attention. But they contacted me to tell me about the project. Uh, they had published a previous book titled The Astounding Illustrated History of Science Fiction. In their invitation, they asked if I would be interested in writing one or more chapters of a companion book to be focusing on fantasy and horror. I looked up The Astounding Illustrated History of Science Fiction and saw that it was basically an astonishingly classy-looking product, sumptuously illustrated, as they say. And I also saw who else would be participating. And I said, uh, absolutely. And I got to uh, pick an unclaimed chapter. And so uh, I ended up writing on fantasy and horror in the 1960s and 70s. That's when I was born. I was born in 1970. So I guess I'm smack dab in the middle of uh, Generation X, you know. I told several people as I was doing the research for this, and they provide they provided, the publisher provided some ideas maybe about coverage they would like to see of written texts and uh, cinematic texts and just some basic ideas. And I sent them an outline of the stuff I had come up with, and they said, great, run, run with it. But I told several people that looking at this era of fantasy and horror in the English language, basically, so in, in a lot of it, British and American, it felt like conducting an archaeological excavation of my own childhood because... I don't know if you've had my experience. I assume everyone has had my experience. Things from that era, uh, the few years preceding right when I was born and the first few years after I was born, they have this sort of mythic haze that surrounds them. It's almost like there's this mythic numinosity whenever I look at the cultural productions of that era. They seem to carry this extra weight of depth and significance, even if it's cheesy stuff. Like I saw Dracula AD 1972 when I was a teenager. You know, and that was... Hardly the best thing Hammer ever produced, but for me, there's something about that era that strikes me as having some kind of resonant significance. So as I was researching uh, what would be good for coverage for a general chapter in a book of this type to cover the broad subjects of fantasy and horror in, in those decades, I found that I was going back and touching on a lot of things that had been of enormous importance to me personally and also discovering some things that I hadn't known about and found out that those were connected to the things that I liked most. And also the books explicitly, the intent of the book was not just to write about books and films and television shows and such, but to link the productions in, in question, the books and the films and such, to important socio-cultural events and trends of the era. So again, that was really fused right into a, a very important period for me. So it became kind of a personal project. I was kind of trying to make sense of these things for me as early formative influences because I was deeply, deeply into uh, speculative fiction matters from the time I was very young. So it was kind of like a process of self-interpretation in a way to write about these things as linked to the surrounding culture at that time period. 
as I was looking at the PDF you sent us, it's got the cover on it and there's a scene from Jaws. Mm -hmm. And this is a question I've asked myself before, fantasy and horror. So Flame Tree released an astounding illustrated history of science fiction. And then they decided to put fantasy and horror together. And I've seen that before. There's a famous, well, I don't know how famous it is, but uh, Neil Gaiman wrote an introduction to one of the anthologies of Lovecraft's works where he talks about fantasy and horror being sister cities connected by a, a bridge. Maybe we should try to maybe start by defining our terms. Like, how do you differentiate fantasy from horror? What is fantasy? I, I'd like to hear your thoughts, Phil, too, on that after after Matt uh, gives us his. All right. Well, it's funny you would say that. <laughs> I thought that might be a question coming up. So I actually have called up something here I'm going to read you. I think I'd mentioned to you in the emails leading up to our conversation here that I had been extremely busy with uh, various things recently, including working on a dissertation. I'm at the beginning of my third year of getting a PhD right now, not in any field that I had ever expected that I would. It's kind of a matter of expediency for uh, where I work in my college. I'm I'm in a, a vice president position now. So to my surprise, I am deeply into a uh, PhD in uh, leadership studies. I had always thought it would be comparative literature or yeah. you know, transpersonal psychology or film studies or something. But uh, I'm finding ways to uh, splice it over and, and lay it over against uh, themes of other interests of mine. I'm ABD right now, so I, I uh, did comps some months back. And there's a specialization component at the university I'm going to for the PhD. So my specialization component is English. And when I was given the opportunity by one of the comps questions, I wrote about the distinctions among uh, science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Prior to coming on uh, with the conversation right now, I called that up again to see if, in fact, that would be usable. And yeah, I was reminded that I tried to define them to my satisfaction. So hope you don't mind if I read what I wrote. It still says what I thought about seven or eight months ago. Here we go. Um, it was only with the evolution of human culture towards the modern global epistemological regime of scientific, or more accurately, scientistic realism and rationalism that fantasy as such became a distinct genre. The aim and function of fantasy literature in this modern regime is to present readers with stories that evoke a sense of the fantastic and the marvelous, stories in which magic and the mystical and all kinds of other formally disallowed and disavowed realities in the current cultural order are allowed to present themselves and generate a sense of wonder and pleasure. So that was my, that was and is my take on it. Uh, Oh, I like that. Well, thank you. With the addendum that some fantasy stories of whatever form they're in seem to involve the invasion of the everyday world with fantastic events. An obvious example is magical realism. And then others like the Lord of the Rings and any number of other examples are set entirely in separate fantastic worlds. But either way, it's as if, in my view, fantasy provides a kind of psychic or spiritual outlet in in an era of a lockdown of rationalism and scientism, as I said. I like that definition because the usual presumption behind the question, okay, what, what is fantasy or define fantasy, is that fantasy is the special thing, an exceptional case, that needs to be defined against, you know, what's normal. And the way you kind of framed it is just sort of not so much why fantasy, but why not fantasy? You know, in a culture that doesn't have this kind of limiting scientistic rationalism, 
which we educated moderns think of as just being normal. You know, that's just, that's how people are, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Taking our own little chunk of historical space-time and extrapolating it out to humanity as a whole. You know, it's only within that little slice of historical time and that little place in the North Atlantic West that you would have to invent a special category called fantasy to house all of those human longings and pleasures and delights. Exactly. And it's been observed by many people that when you go back far enough in history, you find that there was no such distinction. If you go back in Western literature to the Odyssey, or if you go back even farther, you go back to Gilgamesh or something, you find that all of what we consider to be category or genre distinctions are mashed up in those things, including fantasy and horror. It's interesting how parts of the most primal types of storytelling have made it through that filter of the Enlightenment and others in sort of a, a straightforward way. Others have had to be recast so that we have the category of, quote unquote, the fantastic to refer to things which are not supposed to actually be accepted as real, whether in a simplistic or a profound sense, but just as entertainment. But we find that obviously there's a response to them. The human psyche still resonates with it. And that's what I was thinking when I when I framed it that way. You framed it wonderfully because in the French literary tradition, there's a different split. There's what they call the, fant the fantastique and the merveilleux. So the fantastic and the marvelous. And those are actually two separate genres. So the way they see it is in a story that belongs to the fantastique, the characters are stunned and amazed by what they see and experience. So there's an invasion of another world Another world invades or intrudes upon our world. Lovecraft would be a great example of fantastic literature. Whereas Merveilleux in a marvelous tale, the characters belong to the world of the strange. Like for Lord of the Rings would be an example, I guess, of the Merveilleux. So you can see how fantasy, understood as fantastic in the French sense, is very close to horror. There's an invasion, but it seems like I'm curious to hear your definition of horror because we'll see how that evolves, how fantasy evolves or devolves or whatever into horror because there, there are similarities and I do think they're more closely aligned than science fiction in a sense. Another point I wanted to make just as an idea we can maybe discuss later is that when I was writing my book, I realized that even realistic fiction isn't going to be good fiction until it's fantasy on some level. But we can discuss that maybe <laughs> at a later time in the conversation. But let's talk about how fantasy relates to horror then. How do you see that relationship cohering? I guess I'll read my own words again. And, and I, by the way, what you were just saying, yes, we should come back to that. <laughs> that was, that's, that's, that's a good, that's an interesting point. Again, reading, uh, like fantasy, horror places the fantastic in general in a prominent position with its frequent incorporation of the supernatural. Like fantasy, the supernatural substream of horror didn't come into existence as a separate entity and couldn't come into existence until the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution had banished notions of the fantastic and the supernatural from respectable above-board cultural and intellectual discourse. And like science fiction, horror frequently comments on the quote-unquote real world, although when you finish a horror story, you can expect those scare quotes sometimes around the term real world. But horror is distinguished from fantasy and from science fiction by what might be perceived as a relentless focus on the dark and nightmarish side of life. Ramsey Campbell and many other distinguished practitioners of the art of horror 
have pointed out that it is the type of fiction that refuses to look away, that deliberately peers into the darkness that everybody senses sometimes. And then Douglas Winter, who of course is another noted horror author and scholar of the genre, famously observed that horror is the only genre named after the reaction it seeks to evoke from the reader. The question of why people would want to be horrified is maybe something that can be pursued as a tangent, but one might consider that horror can serve as a kind of psychotherapeutic function for both the individual and society because in its determination to look into the dark and uh, maybe forestall the Freudian return of the pressed, it solves certain problems that other types of literature do not. So for a shorter version of that, horror specifically is the type of literature and the type of just storytelling that looks into that particular fearsome, nightmarish area of life and refuses to look away. It engages with it to find out what there is in that, whereas fantasy might be, the way I framed it previously, might be viewed as something of a psychological escapism, not necessarily in a bad sense, but psychological escapism nonetheless, whereas horror can be looked at as some kind of storytelling of engagement with the darkness. Hmm. Again, it's interesting to think about these as genres that exist because modernity brings them into being. Because so I'm thinking about fairy tales and how, you know, old folk tales often just have a dimension of horror to them. And it's not the focus necessarily, but it's just sort of there. Like, you know, you'll have a, a story and then suddenly somebody gets their head cut off. And I, I like that idea of a psychotherapeutic approach or function because it seems to me that, like if you have a worldview, a kind of pre-modern worldview where you view death as obviously something to be avoided, but you view human life as part of a kind of cyclical functioning, then your attitude about death is going to be somewhat different than if you are in the secular modern West that views time not cyclically, but in a sort of strictly linear sense, and death is simply the end. And that unfathomable end, that just complete cessation of consciousness and existence, that itself is the powerful, implicit horror of modernity. That's like a that's like a subtext that's always there and seldom talked about. And I wonder if that is something that horror, that quality that just sort of is ambient in a lot of folk tales, sort of becomes separated out and cultivated on its own in response to that ambient horror of the capital E end, that sort of metaphysic of human life. That makes sense to me. I think there's multiple lenses that can be placed across it. And what you just said right there strikes me as an entirely valid and also a valuable way of getting at it. My own mind skitters off in various directions when I think about responding to that. One of them simply being, and this is tangential in a way, but one of them simply being that when you describe fairy tales and folk stories and that type of thing, the way I have long viewed them is that those things are sprung directly from the twilight zone of the human psyche. They're directly from the, the liminal realm, the imaginal realm. And there, of course, as we all know from dreams and other such things and other encounters with that level, you've got the same mashup, the same organic unity that existed uh, all the way back in the earliest primal days of storytelling before we had this separation into genres. So 
you're going to have a fairy tale and it's in a fantasy land and it has romance and it has adventure and it has intrigue. It has a certain soap opera-ness and all this kind of thing. And it's suddenly, you know, what if somebody's head get chopped off? As you said, that it's totally valid to me to have multiple ways of looking at that. The one being, as you said, attempting to deal with the notion of the end with the capital T and the capital E. For me, I also look at it as that's the kind of bizarre thing that just happens in that realm, in that <laughs> shadow realm. So the logic is the logic of the imaginal. And then these things are all put together again in, in a fairy tale, which, again, those survive into the age of the Enlightenment and into the age of scientism. But their origins are largely pre that. Is this making sense as I say it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's interesting to think about how the folk becomes, just the category of the folk, becomes a category by which the the weird generally can be contained. And I'm thinking particularly of like my own institution, Indiana University, the big main library. All of the occult books or almost all of the books that have to do with magic and the occult, that have to do with paranormal stuff, Fortiana, that domain of experience, all of it is shoveled into a folklore collection. It's almost like, you know, you put it all in one part of the library so that the weird books don't kind of get out and infect the rest of the library. We have to make it clear that in our order of knowledge, all of that stuff belongs to the order that we call folk. That's perfect. That's the perfect illustration. Exactly. And obviously, there's deliberation that goes into doing something like that. At the same time, whether consciously or unconsciously, and I like to think unconsciously, it illustrates exactly the point that you're making. And I think this thing is visible all over the place in multiple contexts, multiple levels. This idea of folk, these kind of vestiges that cling on despite enlightenment thinking, right? Like in analytic philosophy, there's a term folk psychology, which was proposed by the uh, philosophers who were uh, into what they called uh, eliminative materialism. Basically, their idea is that what's actually going on in consciousness happens entirely at the neuronal level. And our entire structure of consciousness, our language, our ideas, our representations, all of these things belong to a category they called folk psychology, which we could actually envision one day getting rid of completely so that the entire order of meaning could be relegated to the folklore section of the library eventually, according to these eliminative materialists, which gives us an idea of like the bifurcation that happened in modernity when it comes to thinking about what the world's actually made of. You know, there's the way we experience the world and more and more of that, according to some, let's call them extreme adherence to scientism, more and more of that should be relegated to folklore. And what's left is this kind of like blind causal system that in the end, ironically, ends up being this Lovecraftian monster <laughs> that makes the world just as bizarre and horrific as it, as it ever was under, under folk psychology, right? Is, is it just me or have, I, have you just given me uh, an idea for like not just a story, but a possible interconnected series of stories and maybe you describe the basis of your next film? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's it's just it's the, Phil and I often hit on the the ironies or the weird kind of um, paradoxes of modern thinking. How this the effort to disenchant the world just makes the world horrific. And this is one thing that I think Lovecraft kind of nailed. And one thing I love about Lovecraft is in the fiction he's not nearly as uh, modern in his uh, sympathies as he's made out to be in some secondary literature. I find that one of the, his great innovations was to link 
the discoveries of modern science with the discoveries of ancient magic, right? So that in Lovecraft, the Cthulhu mythos magic, what the sorcerers do and the cultists, is effective. Words have power. Magic formulas still exist, but they exist they, they, they still exist and they're still effective, but because they are working from principles that modern science is discovering. So in a sense, what's going on in Lovecraft is the discovery that the disenchanted world is actually validating the old enchanted world, but in a way that makes the old enchanted world absolutely horrible and horrific and nihilistic in a way. I would think that that also speaks to a very important strand of his character, where, uh, as we know, he was, I guess one would say, profoundly romantic, you know, not in the loving sense, but in the sense of romanticism. He had those huge uh, desires and passions for uh, transcendence, and he wrote all about emotional transport at sunsets and skyscapes and that kind of thing, and looking at the slanting rooftops of New England towns in the twilight and that kind of thing. And we know he wrote not just horror, but science fiction and fantasy and sort of a combination of all three. And you have like the dream quest of unknown Kadath that puts uh, what I prefer to frame as his sense of sand-soaked uh, completely to use in a, in a combination of fantasy and horror. Like you said, he had that mechanistic, materialistic, scientistic view of things and was an ardent atheist and loved to talk about that in his letters and with people and all that. But when you go back and you realize that, in, as you say, in many ways, he's when he's writing his sort of scientific, realistic horror stories. He's re-enchanting things in a way, or looking at that old enchantment from a different angle. I look at that as serving an important emotional function for him, because he, on the one hand, thought, oh, it's neat that we're set free from all the superstitions of previous eras. On the other hand, I think he viewed, to some extent, the materialist world that he envisioned as this gigantic trap. And he said explicitly that we're possessed with this longing for transcendence that we can probably only get illusory experiences of in fiction. That's a richness in his sensibility that when I first saw it articulated by one or more literary critics, uh, explained a whole lot to me about what I had been reading for years in his work and also about my own responsiveness to that because that really resonates with me on a personal level. Yeah, I, I recently wrote a, a chapter for a book that's coming out next year, edited by James Curcio about Ligotti. And I make a similar argument there. I mean, w at least what really attracts me to Ligotti's fiction, which I absolutely love, is that romanticism, that appreciation for the imaginal aesthetic power of the little details of things, how things come off, how things look, how a, a particular skyscape looks, or like a slanting rooftop, like you mentioned. And for me, that stuff redeems or at least transforms and transmutes the nihilistic philosophical impetus behind the stories and at least doesn't compromise it but makes it much more ambiguous than for example the Gaudi's nonfiction uh, work would propose well, the problem and the problem not problem really I guess but the problem with Ligotti in that way is that uh, in Lovecraft you have a meaninglessness to his view of the cosmos both in real life existentially for him and then also in the fictional universe that he created and uh, it just happens to be horrific to us because we are completely insignificant and like an afterthought sometimes his protagonists run up against these powers and principles that would be better for them not to have encountered he even said in uh, one of his stories was it through the gate to the silver key that might have been his his co-writer in that one may have come up with this i don't recall but uh, through the gate to the silver key he has that line that i even put in my first published story teeth something about the vast conceit of those who babble of the malignant ancient ones. 
You know, they don't, mm -hmm. they don't care about us. They just seem horrific to us. But Ligati, the problem is it's not a meaningless universe. It's not exactly, exactly. nihilistic. There is a meaning and it's malevolent and you're screwed. You're right. And this is a, a point I try to make in this little chapter I wrote. I would align Ligati very closely with someone like Arthur Machen, who approaches the fiction with uh, a religious sensibility that I find less present in, in Lovecraft. Um, and maybe this is due to, you know, Ligati's Catholic childhood, and he was extremely devout until he was a teenager anyways. But it's something that makes Ligati even scarier is exactly what you're saying, is that the world remains meaningful, <laughs> but the meaning is what's horrific. It's precisely the fact that the world means something that is horrific. Um, maybe, that may yeah. be linked. I don't know. It may, be, may or may not be linked. I think it might be to a, a way that I expressed to myself some years back in an essay that I wrote comparing Lovecraft and Ligotti, a way that I expressed sort of their basic thrusts. And I said that uh, it seems that Lovecraft's horror fundamentally is the horror of outsideness, the horror of cosmic outsideness, like you were referring to in the bifurcation of the French tradition. You know, Lovecraft's is this horror of an invasion of the cosmos and of the person and of human consciousness and society by these horrible, from our point of view, external forces. Whereas Ligotti's, in a way, is is the horror of deep insideness, where there's this fundamental ontological nightmarishness involved in things, and it's also involved pretty much in the center of a human, and that sometimes these things just come out in ways that tip reality over and turn it into a nightmare and someone actually is sucked inside their worst nightmare or something like that. But it's not necessarily coming from outside, or if it is, there's always a resonance with something on the ontological level that's more inside the soul. if I can deflect the conversation slightly, we've talked about horror and we've talked about fantasy. And those are two of what I think of as the three big divisions of, I guess, what we could call speculative fiction. The other one being science fiction. Does science fiction figure into this conversation in any way? Or is it sort of, are we defining that as a kind of an other to whatever it is we're talking about? Well, to me, it would figure in. It's a, I agree with you. It, it's, a, it's a subcategory of the fantastic in general or of speculative fiction in general. Maybe in its intent and what it accomplishes, it's different in that. And this is no great stroke of genius on my part to say it this way, but it tends to be uh, based on looking at the present and extrapolating it into the future, you know, and coming up with warnings or hopeful, very, very seldom do we have, but we have the, the hopeful looking forwards and such, or just... We have that desire to see, I think, what may be coming in science fiction is, is one mode of doing that. And in doing so, it becomes fantastic to some extent, whether it's on a technological level or, or another level. Could be a grim future, could be a pleasant future. Sometimes it extrapolates into the past, but that's kind of what I think. And very obviously, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is a quintessential example where you have horror and science fiction fused, that's often pointed to as maybe the first true science fiction novel. Brian Aldiss, remember that line? He called it the first great myth of the industrial age. 
So maybe Frankenstein is is a prototype to look at there. She was seeing things going on. She was Mary Shelley. She was fascinated and concerned and so on and so forth. And so she says, well, what might happen if such and such, which is very much similar to what fantasy and uh, horror do, but I think with the, the fundamental in, intent, like the arc of the fictional vision heading just in, a, in its own unique direction. You see, for me, I think about science fiction. I once said sort of half-jokingly that science fiction is fantasy for people that need a reason. Mm. And getting back to the earlier part of a conversation, if you think about like the advent of the modern, you know, and with a capital M, it's almost like a prism, you know, you think start off with storytelling. It's like a white light. And this prism breaks this white light into all these separate colors. So you have the horror color and the, the fantasy color, and now we have the science fiction color. The science fiction always oh, seems to me as sort of like this operation where like, okay, in the modern world, I want to live in this sort of, I, my mind wants to do the fantasy thing, but I have to find a place to put it. So if I'm imagining a world with two suns or whatever, I have to say like, well, where is that? Oh, it's a planet in such and so star system. Like I have to find a physical place to put it. Whereas formerly you could just posit whatever world you please. And I think about this particularly with respect to like zombies, the figure of the zombie, because you can kind of think about what a zombie is and you say, oh, well, that's just a monster. It's a kind of a ghoulish monster that eats human beings. But it sort of becomes science fiction or science fiction-y, science fiction-ish, if you just append an explanation for it. You say, oh, well, there's this virus that's released from a government lab and a whole nation becomes infected by it. And then we're going to follow the uh, fortunes of the few people who are uninfected by this virus, right? You could take the exact same story of a, a few beleaguered survivors being overtaken by a horde of monsters. You could make that fantasy or you could make that science fiction. The difference is sort of where we want to put our imaginations, a kind of a demand that is very difficult not to not to feel sort of, you know, pulling your coat or tugging on you. I think that's a great point. The idea that that science fiction is fantasy for people who need a reason, I find myself agreeing with that profoundly. And it brings me back to what I was suggesting at the beginning about all fiction in order to work as fiction being fantasy on some level. This is a, a realization that I made, or at least it's a belief that I came upon as I was reading Ian McEwan's book, Enduring Love. Have either of you read that book? No, I have not. It's a good book. So Ian McEwan is a, uh, in his interviews and in his essays, he's a very rationalist, modern guy, very secular. And his fiction contains none of the tropes that you would find in fantasy. I haven't read all of his books, so there may be exceptions, but not in this particular book, Enduring Love, it's, it's straightforward, realist, contemporary, secular fiction. But the, it begins with this incident where... A hot air balloon basically takes off before it should, like it kind of gets untethered. And this one guy is just hanging from a rope from the balloon. And then the protagonist watches another guy try to grab the one guy and he starts lifting up with him. So these two guys are, are hanging off this wayward hot air balloon. And in the end, one of the guys falls. But the point is that the way he paints the scene, 
the way you see this balloon against the blue sky with the green of the park underneath it, I realized that all these things were working together, all these elements of the image and of the scene and of the meaning and of the characters and all that were working together in a, in a way that Carl Jung would call synchronistic. There's a reason why he's choosing to make the sky cerulean blue at that moment. It just somehow symbolically works into the image he's building. And then I was reading, I just remembered that famous quote from Chekhov, right? If you see a gun in Act 1, it has to go off in Act 3. So that in a work of art, all the elements have to work together. So works of art, in a sense, always depict the world as profoundly synchronistic, even if the characters and even if the narrator doesn't believe in such things as synchronicity. The story works because precisely these characters and the themes and the setting and the mood and the, the whole thing works together to form a kind of unit, which makes it on some level a kind of enchanted universe, a kind of fantasy. So science fiction is kind of a great example of that, where we're using science to resurrect mythical ideas. And I mean, there's no shortage of books looking at how science fiction reiterates myths in new uh, contexts and new forms. So it's just an interesting thing when you look at it, that in a sense, maybe the distinction between the disenchanted secular world and the enchanted folkloric world is probably weaker than we think it is when we intellectualize these things and put them in different categories. That's a wonderful point. For some reason, what you're saying puts me in mind of, was it that was, at the time that we're recording this, it, was it three or four episode to go on this podcast it wasn't hyperstition isn't that what you were talking about yeah, in right. hyperstitial sort that's in a way that puts me in mind of, uh, of that i guess because when you talk about necessarily jf uh, a fictional universe no matter of what type being in, in a way a, a network of synchronicities like you said even if it's realistic fiction we, we've all heard the basics of writing a good story, and and we all know it when we read it. Yes, things have to be connected and such in a way that extreme rationalists or materialists or whatever might might say that they are not on a symbolic level in the real world. When you read fiction, it's automatically that way. I wonder how much of that, no matter what type of fiction you're reading, might rub off on someone who is who is particularly deeply into storytelling of whatever variety and might impact their sensibility uh, in the real world as such, something that always needs to have scare quotes put around it. But I'm of the mind that uh, we actually are living in a situation like that. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and I, I don't literalize that. I think to do that would be to reduce it. I take metaphor to be more real than what's commonly referred to as reality these days sometimes. But even for people who aren't into that, as I say, I think that that would be interesting to, to, I don't know, there may be a study to be done in that area or some kind of scholarship to be, maybe it has been done. How much does the interconnectedness of, of a story, a fictional story, just of necessity, like you say, how much does that have to do, if at all, with uh, the way readers of stories and writers of stories existentially view or experience their own situations? Yeah, inevitably experience their own situations. Right, right. Because right. even, even if you're going to say, I'm going to write a novel, well, you're already living in a world where there's a point to writing novels. That's you know? right. You're right. Yeah, it's, it's not going to be a not doesn't have to be like a Philip K. Dick type of thing, right? That got got him started on the road to exegesis. And I should say, by the way, Phil, the idea of science fiction as fantasy for people who need reason. I like that. That seems to say a lot in just a very few words. <laughs> well, you know, it's, I, what I really like is JF's way of flipping it because you know, 
And it reminds me of something William Burroughs, I think I might have even quoted him mm-hmm. to this effect on this show, William Burroughs saying that novelists always live in an enchanted universe, that the fortuitous coming together of different elements presents us with an enchanted world. On this account, in the way you framed it, pretty much every fictional genre is fantasy for people who need a reason. Right. <laughs> you know? That's true. And I like the direction this conversation has gone because it's like asserting the priority of fantasy. And this is something that I, as a lifelong lover of fantasy, reader of comic books, avid consumer of fantastic genres of film, um, you know, reading the PDF that you sent us, Matt, for me was just like profoundly nostalgic, seeing so many production elements from films that I grew up watching and loved. It's sort of a pet peeve of mine when I hear advocates of so-called literary fiction talking down to fantasy, acting like fantasy is this sort of not terribly respectable neighborhood on the outskirts of the literary world. And uh, the direction this conversation has taken is kind of cool because it's actually repositioning fantasy as a sort of like, no, that what we call fantasy is just a kind of storytelling in a mode of the imaginal. And that is the uh, fonts at Origo of all fiction. Everybody else is just fronting like they're doing something different. Well, and then by that way of framing it, you could say that what JF put forth could lead to the conclusion that fantasy as such, or in any of its three subcategories that we're talking about as speculative fiction, could be viewed as the more upfront and honest. If everything actually is fantasy, then these at least are being forthright about it. <laughs> exactly, yeah. should talk a little bit about the 60s and 70s i was born in the late 70s i'm a little younger than you guys but i feel a lot of nostalgia for that era and i was really looking forward to touching on it before we end so can we talk about how all these ideas we've been discussing feed into that particular era that time that you wrote about matt yeah i guess there's two things i'm curious about i'm curious to know you were talking about works that you're extremely nostalgic about works that came out right before right after you were born so that's one thing I'd love to know. If there's one or two films or books you'd like to bring up. And another one was what makes that particular era significant? You put forth a lot of ideas in that short chapter in a very succinct and interesting way. But I think that if we could just boil it down to the central idea, I don't know, it could be interesting and get people to buy the book. <laughs> oh, sure, sure, yeah. The publishers gave, uh, or the editors gave the title to my chapter. It's chapter four in the book. On the Brink of Evolution. That's the title of the chapter on the 60s and 70s, fantasy and horror in the 60s and 70s, On the Brink of Evolution. And then I opened it uh, with a section titled The Cauldron of Cultural Transformation. My opening sentence in that section, I've got the book here, let me see. 
I said, to gain a sense of the scope and the impact of the changes wrought upon fantasy and horror by the heady era of the 1960s and 70s, one need only recount a number of the most important events, trends, and developments in the general culture of that era. And then for the rest of the chapter, as with the other chapters in the book, I combined a tracing of significant social and cultural events with the fantasy and horror productions of the era. And we obviously know that the 60s was a, a transformative period in the English-speaking world, in Europe, I guess in, in the Western world at the very least. And some of the stuff I talk about in the chapter, you had the rise of environmentalism, you had the huge dislocations and the heady, crazy optimism and expansive sense of infinite possibility that came with the counterculture on both sides of the Atlantic. And you had the rise of feminism. I mean, there was, there was just all these things happening that seemed like they were going to transform the world, maybe in a positive way. There was this utopianism that was happening and it was clashing with the expectations of older generations. But at the same time, we know that the 1960s also had things like uh, in the U.S., 1968, when uh, Dr. Martin Luther King is assassinated, Bobby Kennedy is assassinated, riots in Vietnam at some of its worst parts and stuff was happening over in the UK as well that made it just unbelievably tumultuous. It was it was just almost insanity. Today, right now, we know a lot of people are feeling a great civilizational crisis uh, in, uh, in our respective uh, countries. And that was, of course, being felt to a massive extent back then. And so I think inevitably you had uh, both fantasy and horror rising to new heights. It was like a, a gauntlet, that cauldron of cultural transformation I talked about. The 60s and the 70s were the period when fantasy and horror emerged on the other side in their modern guise. There had been fantasy and horror previous to that, obviously. But say the 60s, Lovecraft suddenly became the craze, and that only, that only got bigger in the 70s. In the 60s, there was uh, a renaissance of Tolkien. And then in the 70s, you have the, the Ballantine paperbacks published. You know, in the 70s, you have the three books I point to in the chapter, or the three, I guess, series, big works that I point to in the chapter that launched the modern fantasy. In fact, the same, the same year, 1977, you had Terry Brooks's The Sword of Shannara come out. And you had the first book in Stephen Donaldson's The Chronicles of Thomas Covenant, The Unbeliever, come out. And I believe you had the publication of uh, Tolkien's The Silmarillion, which, which had been sort of a legendary book people knew about for years. These things set the tone for subsequent fantasy. As far as horror goes, 1968, the year that it felt to a lot of people like the whole dang world was going to end. How are we going to end this year? That was, of course, the year that Night of the Living Dead came out and created one of the most potent monster metaphors ever since. And that thing, as we know, is saturated in subtextual social commentary that, that uh, George Romero swears was unintentional. But if it was, then he was being guided by some kind of supernatural entity to be blinded to it because it's, it, you can't miss the racial and the socioeconomic commentary going on right there that speaks right to that era. So the stuff that came out of that era, the fantasy and horror, as in all other eras, you can see it hooking right to the culture. But I think it was so tempestuous and so harrowing for a lot of people. And, and of course, this, this again, mostly this book mostly limits itself to Britain and uh, America and North America, you know, so it's, we don't want to 
act like we're talking about a wider swath than we are. But it was so tempestuous, so traumatizing that these two ways of approaching the fantastic were transformed. And for me, some of the stuff that came out of them that was most moving, most important on the fantasy side, oddly enough, the Tolkien, certainly, I was I was impacted by Tolkien and by Ralph Bakshi's film adaptation. I love that. I actually had the two record picture disc LP edition of the soundtrack to that thing by Leonard Rosen, and I was really into that. But uh, it was young adult literature and fantasy. Speaking to, to kids, I think, that was that got me a lot. Like, have you guys read The Chronicles of Prydain by Lloyd, Lloyd Alexander? I have not. No. no. Remember Disney's The Black Cauldron? It really, yeah. really kind of came and went. That was an adaptation of, uh, it combined the first and second books in that series. But that was a hugely impactful on me. Lloyd Alexander combined a fictionalization of Welsh mythology with his own characters and such to produce a really gripping and moving young adult fantasy series. Madeline Lingle's Wrinkle in Time. I got read that aloud all the way through by my fifth grade teacher and then read it about 10 times additionally myself. Hey, me too. Hey. Right down to the fifth grade teacher part. There you go. There, Mrs. Preddy, Becky Preddy, my fifth grade. She was my fourth and fifth grade teacher and she's still a family friend. She read that and it just transfixed me. And of course, young adult literature has the thing going on where young adults who read it identify with the protagonists and usually it is bound up with their their childhood and all the fears and hopes of that time. This is true of these things, but those were particularly strong in, in their, their resonances that go beyond even that. Horror-wise, I discovered Lovecraft after I had been primarily interested in fantasy all the way up to the end of the 80s, actually. I discovered Lovecraft, who had sort of come of age culturally in the 60s and 70s. I discovered him in connection with the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game, and uh, that set the tone for much of my future life. Ray Bradbury, Something Wicked This Way Comes, The Exorcist, the novel and the movie were both early 70s. Invasion of the Body Snatchers, that was a big one for me. Wasn't it 1977, Philip Kaufman's remake? These are a number of the things that were foundational to me. I was attracted to them as entertainment, but also they were they were more than that to me. That's, that's the thing is I've been one of those people for a long time, and I'm sure you two have been as well, that can remember ever since I was a kid. It was like I was constantly striving past just the entertainment value of such things. I could tell that they were really moving me in certain ways. And I think lots of people who have an artistic or creative bent, they feel that. Or if they're avid readers or movie watchers, they feel that. For me, it was it became increasingly self-conscious. I was, I was aware in ways as a, a child and an adolescent that I was sort of searching for meaning and self-definition and self-understanding by engaging with these things. One of the things that makes this era interesting, I think, and I'm, this just occurred to me now, maybe uh, maybe it's the, also the relationship between readers and viewers and films and books has changed in some way. For example, one of the things you bring up, and I don't see that brought up all too often, although I don't read tons of secondary literature on Tolkien, but Tolkien today is very much ingrained in the mainstream. He's just entrenched in our kind of, uh, he's become a lot of people who are into fantasy would seem as cliche. We need to transcend Tolkien and all that. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any question that the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion are like gigantic literary achievements. But what's interesting when you look back at the 60s is how Lord of the Rings was received at the time. It was a counterculture book. I remember reading an essay by William Irwin Thompson describing how he met this student, um, this hippie, who was saying that Tolkien was actually writing about Atlantis. 
and that Middle Earth was actually part of the kind of like spiritual history, at least of the of the world. I mean, that type of intense, almost kind of mystical, engaged relationship with with art always existed. But I think maybe I don't know for various reasons, maybe the decline of religion, all kinds of things we could talk about in the '60s and '70s. Uh, these works of pop culture or of literary culture become channels for changing your worldview, engaging with the world, uh, interpreting mm-hmm. the events of your life. There's this kind of mystical engagement, which you find consummated in something like Philip K. Dick's work, where there's no distinction anymore. There's no line anymore between the fiction and the reality. And people who read Philip K. Dick always seem to end up in a Philip K. Dick novel themselves. So maybe it's just this mass media culture that encourages that type of engagement with the realm of dreams and stuff. But um, Mm -hmm. it's certainly when I was looking at your list of works, I was noticing how so many of them have become just part of a kind of uh, ethical, metaphysical worldview that we share. These, these These are more than just cultural references. These are actual imaginal forces that we deal with, like Jaws or Star Wars or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm just throwing well, yeah, a whole you, bunch of stuff out there. You, now, you, may, re, you may recall uh, George Clayton Johnson wrote a whole bunch of the Twilight Zone episodes. Yeah. Right. He was, he was a fantastic writer. And there's that series of uh, Emmy interviews, I think is what they are, that you can find on YouTube with various important people. He has some fascinating interviews you can watch. He was quite a colorful character. And in one of those, he talks specifically about the function of the Twilight Zone, exactly like you were talking. And in fact, he says, uh, if I recall, he calls them consciousness changers. And he, he speaks as if that was to a degree deliberate, that these episodes of the Twilight Zone, by using that term Twilight Zone and by coming up with different iterations of ways that people could encounter that liminal space, were transformers of consciousness for that era and afterwards. So that, that, hmm. that I don't haven't looked into how much he might be reading that back into it or what the authenticity of that being an attitude that was held at the time those were being written and produced uh, may actually be. But yeah, exactly what you're saying. That's certainly not lost, I think, on some of the creators of these cultural productions. Right. Yeah, I'm sitting here. I've got the PDF that you sent us open and I'm looking at the two page spread that has the Wicker Man photo like Christopher Lee. On the one hand, wielding an axe, and then on the other, the actual wicker man flaming on the twilight horizon. And there's a bunch of other images, like from The Omen and uh, Dawn of the Dead, Salem's Lot, and so on. And these are, you know, cover art that is burned into my mind's eye. Even in things like Salem's Lot. I never read Salem's Lot, but I remember, you know, you go to your friend's house, and their mom would have, like, a dog-eared paperback copy of Salem's Lot sitting on the coffee table or whatever. These are just objects that are part of the environment that I grew up in in the 1970s, early 1980s. And, you know, we're talking about these things as narrative structures that do certain kind of work. For me, you know, I'm actually an extremely credulous and uncritical movie watcher. Like, it does not take much for me to enjoy a movie. When I go to a movie, I just kind of take it all in. I almost always enjoy it. <laughs> like, I, I'm, not, I'm just not that critical. Uh, the way I engaged with a lot of these things was, you know, not even in a very serious spirit of, like, thinking what they meant. I wasn't terribly intellectual about it. What these things did, though, to me, the way they really sunk their hooks into me, was on the level of just these single images, like the cover of Salem's Lot, or that single image of the wicker man burning on the twilight horizon. 
images that are sort of like the images that are left over in your mind when you wake up from a really vivid night of dreams. You don't know what they mean. You can't even remember the stories that they're a part of. But they can stick with you for an awfully long time, and they can kind of shape your daylight awareness in ways that you can't even articulate. This is just the sort of... I don't want to say pop culture detritus because it's kind of a cliche and it sounds dismissive, but just the bric-a-brac of images, um, bits and pieces of stories that accumulated in my mind from those years. I feel like that's just kind of made me who I am. That's like the dreaming with your eyes open part of my life. Does that make any sense? Sure, sure. It does to me. I And I, I have the same exact feeling. That's part of what I was talking about, about that too that mythic period from in early life. And it doesn't have to extend just to the first few years one is born. Obviously, we're all being impressed by and shaped by, and we're, and we're interacting with the cultures around us on more than one level for our whole lives. And I have the same feeling. I flipped open the book while you're talking, and I'm looking at that two-page spread, and I see the wicker man burning, and I see Damien standing in the, the field of cross headstones, and I see the Salem's Lot cover from the TV movie, you know, with the house and the vampire standing in the background and all that stuff. And uh, I had the same thing. These are mythic to me. And I think that was, of course, the intent. The graphic designers did their job well. That's uh, that's a conversation for another time and that has been had about a critique of visual culture and the way we're manipulated by that, which is a bad thing in my opinion. But in this case, I think, I think that I want to call this all back to what JF was saying about the way that all stories can be viewed and validly be viewed as fantasy on some level. And kind of what I said about maybe maybe fantasy and horror and science fiction do that in a forthright manner might be applicable here. Um, we're all living with a lot more than just what's going on on the outside, you know, than just what's going on with, with the level that can be measured. Scientism, we've all used the term here, is what it is. And I think it is an impoverished uh, view of the world. And to me, fantasy and horror and science fiction are like a vocabulary. They're a visual vocabulary, like you're saying, Phil, within the modern era with all of the artwork that has been created to go with them and to promote them and to identify them. And then they're a, a semiotic and a psychological and a mythic, cultural, even a metaphysical vocabulary for dealing with this part of ourselves that is real. It's not just as real as the uh, quote-unquote outside. I think it's actually more fundamental looking at it in an ontological sense. And so it's not that I have any point to make beyond that. I just want to emphasize that point. I think these things speak meaningfully. And I think the fact that they are getting a greater hearing in culture these days, they're not quite as outcast as they were at one point. We're living in the age of prestige horror at the moment anyway, for instance. I think that's a good thing. I think they probably will continue to speak that way. And I was, it was a, it was a trip for me to to get asked to write this book and to kind of revisit these things that shaped me so much from the past. I'm glad you guys found it interesting. It sounds like it actually, it actually, the chapter actually said to you what I had intended for it to say. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also follow us on Twitter or support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening.